the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I was uh, out under the same um, cold that lots of people throughout our community have uh, suffered, but I'm glad to be back in studio. Now, I have to warn you, there are times when I break into an unexpected and annoying cough. I'm going to try to avoid that. I actually have a cough button Uh, So I'm going to try to coordinate that so you don't have to listen in, but I'm going to do my best to get through today's program without breaking up, if you will. Uh, Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing, and we're glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Dennis Turi. He's executive director of the Parents Education Association. We're going to talk about Oregon politics and the legislative session in uh, light of what the scriptures have to say. So I'm looking forward to that conversation uh, with him coming up later this hour. Well, snow, of course, fell overnight here in the Portland metro area and the Willamette Valley. Schools were closed, icy conditions this morning for the commute. Uh, this morning's scenario could be repeated overnight, and Thursday morning could be very similar. Temperatures will be near freezing overnight. A brief snowstorm could hit Portland around 7 a.m. This could easily produce a dusting to um, maybe up to an inch of snow. Uh, we could have some icy issues again, but that will be the end of it, at least for this week. The snow has come and gone. There were thousands in the Portland area without power this morning in the Montevilla neighborhood. Uh, businesses were unable to open. Residents were without heat um, uh, as they uh, waited for the power to come back on. That started at about 4 a.m. when a Pacific Power Transformer blew. At one point, there were some 4,500 customers without power. Crews uh, pretty slowly but surely uh, restored power to parts of the area. All power was restored around 3 o'clock this afternoon, so it took some time. Pacific Power is still investigating the cause of that outage. It's uh, likely weather-related. And Oregon Secretary of State Dennis Richards has lost his battle with cancer. He passed away on Tuesday at about 9 p.m. He was at his home surrounded by family and friends. On uh, Tuesday, approximately 9 the Secretary of State, the only Republican in, uh, in leadership, uh, his courageous battle with cancer came to a close. Dennis passed away at his home uh, from his uh, service in Vietnam as a combat helicopter pilot to his 30-year legal career, 19 years in public service. This father of nine, grandfather of 31, found great joy in serving and taking care of others. As Secretary of State, Dennis was fiercely dedicated to accomplishing the work the people of Oregon elected him to do. Upon taking the reins of this office in January of 2017, his visionary leadership built on the strength of the 227 Secretaries of State staff members. Together, Dennis and this dedicated team of public servants improved the program business practices of audits, elections, archives, corporations, and small business, and the three administrative service divisions of the agency. He also brought many professional and personal gifts uh, to the experience uh, and experience, rather, to this office. His focus was on transparency, accountability, integrity, coupled with his uncompromising worth. If you spent time with Dennis, and I have, it wouldn't be long before he shared with you his personal motto of pro tanto quad retro 
well, I won't even attempt the last word, which means having been given much, what will be given in return? The philosophy influenced every aspect of his life of service, uh, became the hallmark uh, by which he became known. His challenge um, uh, as the Secretary of State uh, uh, is to give our very best to each other and to Oregon each day, says one of his former employees. He leaves a legacy of always aiming high, expecting excellence, moving fast, and doing what is right for the people. It's been an honor, says one um, of his uh, former staff members. It has been an honor and a privilege to work with such an incredible leader and wonderful friend. He will be greatly missed. Governor Brown will um, appoint a replacement uh, for um, Mr. Richardson. Uh, in the next few weeks. Taking a look at some of the developing news stories, the president hopes for great things from Vietnam, the summit with Kim Jong-un, which began in earnest, well, last night with a dinner tonight, their time. The president was hopeful for great things as he and the uh, Korean, North Korean dictator uh, were set to meet today in Hanoi, Vietnam, in a closely watched second summit between the two leaders. Though the president and his administration at times tamped down expectations ahead of their planned two-day summit, the president remained optimistic about progress being made in efforts to get Kim and his rogue nation to denuclearize. Now, that's interesting because announcements, pronouncements have been made that they have no intention of doing so. So it's a rather... Um, Slick tightrope. Uh, the president praised Pyongyang for ceasing missile testing and has appeared to ease up on demanding a timeline for disarmament. He hopes that uh, Kim, who's seeking relief from U.S. sanctions, will opt to give up his nuclear weapons program in exchange for help revitalizing his country's economy. Good luck, Mr. President. Trump's critics are skeptical that any real progress will be made in persuading Kim to denuclearize and believe, at worst, the president's summit with Kim will be nothing more than an elaborate worldwide photo op. Trump and Kim and scheduled, uh, rather are scheduled to meet one-on-one before having social dinner. That included Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Acting White House Chief of Staff Mike Mulvaney. Michael Cohen, President Trump's former personal attorney and fixer, testified publicly for the first time before the House Oversight Committee in a spectacle that could overshadow the president's second summit with Kim Jong-un. Now, they had the dinner tonight. That pretty much was everything. Tomorrow is the big day for the president. So while it was headline news and overshadowed what happened today, tomorrow is the bigger day in Uh, In Vietnam, not so much today. Anyway, we'll talk more about that in just a few moments. Well, Democrats on Tuesday pushed unprecedented legislation through the House to block President Trump's national emergency declaration to steer billions of extra dollars to the U.S.-Mexico border wall, raising the prospect that the president might issue his first ever veto to defeat the effect, the effort. The vote was 245 to 182, with all Democrats voting yay. 13 Republicans joining them. Tuesday's vote marked the first time the House or Senate has tried to terminate a presidential declaration of a national emergency using the provisions of the National Emergencies Act of 1976. Former Representative George Miller out of California attempted a similar effort regarding a national emergency declared by then-President George W. Bush, but the measure never came to a vote on the House floor. And the White House... Uh, snubbed Democrats in um, achieving a Ninth Circuit Court nominee uh, appointee. Uh, the Senate on Tuesday confirmed the president's nominee to be judge on the liberal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in a party line vote. And in an historic snub, the White House ignored the input of the judges two Democratic home state senators in that process. 
And a hearing date reportedly has been set concerning the lawsuit from the family of the Alabama woman who wants to come back to the United States after having joined ISIS. Federal Judge Reggie Walton slated the court date for Monday, March the 4th, after Hoda Muthana's uh, family requested that the case be hastened, considering her current placement at a refugee camp in Syria. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Dennis Turi. He's executive director of the Parents Education Association. We're going to talk a little Oregon politics and the legislative session, and more specifically from a biblical perspective. Dennis Turi will join me in studio next segment. Well, on Wednesday, for the first time in a generation, the U.S. House is poised to pass new gun control legislation. Democratic leaders say that they have the votes to pass a bill requiring background checks on all commercial gun sales, including those at gun shows and over the Internet. The bill also has five Republican co-sponsors, led by New York Representative Peter King, who had tried and failed for several years to advance the bill while his party controlled the chamber. Since the bill faces a steep uphill fight in the Republican-run Senate, House leadership arranged a separate vote a day later on Thursday on a more modest measure that may be able to attract greater bipartisan support. And confidence in the media has hit rock bottom, with many news consumers believing that reporters file their reports before knowing the facts, and 60% are under the impression that sources pay for stories, according to a depressing new survey of American journalism. The Columbia Journalism Review poll also confirmed the pending death of print newspapers and magazines and a remarkable shift to social and online media as a source of news, because, of course, that's always reliable. Well, the United Methodist Church voted uh, Tuesday to maintain its traditional stance against same-sex marriage and non-celibate gay uh, clergy, bolstered by a growing conservative contingent in Africa. The plan passed with 438 vote in the in favor, 384 against, that's 53 to 47 percent respectively, in the final hours of a special United Methodist Church conference held this week in St. Louis to address the issues of human sexuality. The decision leaves a sizable vocal opposition, ensuring the exit of many progressive pastors and churches in the largest mainstream Protestant body in the U.S. It's a glimpse at the um, fracturing of the church in general. And on this day in 1991, Operation Desert Storm comes to a conclusion as President George Herbert Walker Bush declares that Kuwait is liberated, Iraq's army is defeated, and announces that the Allies would suspend combat operations. And on this day in 1982, Wayne Williams is found guilty of murdering two of the 28 young blacks whose bodies were found in the Atlanta area over the 22-month period. Williams, who was also blamed for 22 other deaths, has maintained his innocence. And on this day in 1968, at the conclusion of a CBS News special report on the Vietnam War, Walter Conkright delivers a commentary in which he says that the conflict appeared mired in a stalemate. And while that may seem by today's standard to be rather lightweight, it was big news at the time. Well, tensions between India and Pakistan have once again reached a boiling point this month, culminating in both countries saying they shot down fighter jets from the other's air forces on Wednesday. Pakistan's air force said they shot down two Indian warplanes that had crossed into Pakistan, uh, the side of Kashmir, and took both pilots captive. Indian officials also claimed they shot down a Pakistani fighter jet, though Pakistani officials denied any of their jets had been hit. In response to the attacks, Pakistan's Civil Aviation Authority said it closed 
closed its airspace to all commercial flights. The fractured relationship between the two countries is nothing new, and Kashmir has been at the center of a heated rivalry between the neighboring nuclear power as far back as the 1940s when Britain still occupied Pakistan and India. Kashmir is a region in the northwestern part of India, the subcontinent bordered by Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, India, and China. The region is roughly 86,000 square miles and is controlled by India, Pakistan, and China. There's a 435-mile-long border between India-controlled and Pakistan-controlled Kashmir, known as the Line of Control, though neither country acknowledges it as an international Border. One only hopes that doesn't continue to escalate. Well, the big news today was Michael Cohen, the former fixer, about to begin the three-year prison term in about two months, completed his uh, renunciation of President Trump during an explosive congressional hearing today that left no room for reconciliation, calling his former boss a racist, testifying he was aware of an advisor's talk with WikiLeaks about stolen Democratic emails during the 2016 campaign and alleging he f- oversaw an array of illicit schemes during his 10 years they worked together. He um, is a Racist, a con man, and he is a cheat, Cohen testified, setting the tone for the hearing after outlining numerous alleged misdeeds by the president, uh, candidate and president. Cohen expressed regret and repeated the refrain, yet I continued to work for him. Yet Cohen stopped short of saying he had evidence that Trump's presidential campaign colluded with Russia in 2016, asserting he had only suspicions. And Republicans on the House Oversight Committee repeatedly struck at uh, Cohen's credibility, pointing out that he is a convicted liar and suggesting he only turned on Trump after not landing a White House job. You're behaving just like everyone else who got fired or didn't get a job they wanted. Ohio Governor, rather GOP Representative Jim Jordan, the ranking member on the committee, said the fiery testimony marked a remarkable turn for someone who once claimed he'd be willing to take a bullet for Trump. Cohen came to the hearing with a slew of exhibits, including checks, he says, are proof that his previous um, claims that Trump organized hush money payments to two women, including Well, I don't even need to mention their names once again. Um, He accused Trump of being involved in a criminal scheme to violate campaign finance laws as well. I'm going to jail in part because of my decision to help Mr. Trump hide that payment from the American people before they voted a few days later, uh, said Cohen, who worked as Trump's personal lawyer. Well, this was his mea culpa, but much of what he is going to prison for are deeds that were unrelated to Trump that he is solely responsible for. He waded into the investigation over Russia meddling in the 2016 election, accusing Trump of knowing that an advisor, Robert, uh, rather Roger Stone, was reaching out to WikiLeaks about the publication of stolen Democratic National Committee emails during the campaign. Trump has denied advanced knowledge and the issue of timing became an issue in the uh, hearing today. On Wednesday, Stone denied the claim, telling uh, Mr. Uh, Fox News, Mr. Cohen's statement is not true. WikiLeaks also released a statement saying WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange has never had a telephone call with Roger Stone. Cohen did not claim Trump directed those communications. He specifically asserted that he lacks direct evidence of improper collusion by the Trump campaign with Russia. Questions uh, have been raised about whether I know of direct evidence that Mr. Trump or his campaign colluded with Russia. 
Cohen testified, I do not, and I want to be clear, but I have my suspicions. Still, Democrats pushed an unproven theory that Mr. Trump, along with his family, could be compromised by the Russians. Is it, a, is it possible the whole family is conflicted or compromised with foreign adversary in the months before the election? Florida Representative Debbie Wasserman Salt, Schultz, rather, the former chairwoman of the Dem, uh, Democratic National Committee, asked Cohen. Wasserman led the committee when emails were hacked. Yes, Cohen replied, under questioning from Illinois Representative uh, uh, Raja Cohen suggested that the Southern District of New York could be investigating the president for other crimes. Is there any other wrongdoing or illegal act that you are aware of regarding Donald Trump that you haven't yet discussed today? He asked. Yes. And again, those are part of the investigation currently being looked at by the Southern District of New York, Cohen said. Uh, Cohen, under questioning from New York uh, Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, claimed that Trump reported inflated estimates of his assets to insurance companies. And he said he began questioning his loyalty to Trump after the Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki in 2018 and the white supremacist violence in Charlottesville in 2017. The much-awaited hearing began with fireworks as Republicans portrayed Cohen as a liar and unsuccessfully moved to postpone the hearing. In his opening statement, Democratic Chairman Elijah Cummings acknowledged that Cohen repeatedly lied in the past, in fact, to Congress, one of the offenses he's going to prison for, calling it an important factor we need to weigh. He said if Cohen doesn't tell the truth, he'll refer him to the Justice Department for prosecution. And the hearing went back and forth uh, from there. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Dennis Turi. He's the executive director of the Parents Education Association. As you know, the Oregon legislature is in session. But Dennis Turi and um, um, the Parents Education Association has done a significant amount of work over the years in helping to put into perspective, into biblical perspective, issues not just that are of concern to the state of Oregon, but all across the country. We're going to talk about some of them when he joins me here in studio in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. It's about 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. And I have to tell you, I'm pretty excited because Dennis Turi is with me in studio. He's Executive Director of Parents Education Association. He's many other things, but today he's wearing that hat for the sake of our conversation. And for those of you who are unaware of the Parents Education Association, it's dedicated to transforming civil government through biblical truth. Uh, It takes a distinctly biblical perspective on issues, and I so appreciate your wisdom and insight in helping to frame the issues of our day in light of what the scriptures teach, because that is becoming increasingly difficult with some of the complex issues. Where do you connect the dots? Where does the scripture speak to this? Where are the principles that we might uh, apply here? So I, I so appreciate um, your insight and wisdom on those issues. So I'm delighted to have you with us here today because I did want to just take a look at some of what's happening in Salem with the legislature and then some of the national issues um, that I think are are puzzling to many of us in terms of the direction that our uh, constitutional republic seems to be going. So first of all, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great being here. Thank you for all those kind words. Well, they were all true, so oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't have to exaggerate a single one of them. Oh, wow. Before we get started, I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on the uh, a recent death of Oregon Secretary of State Dennis Richardson, uh, who passed away last night at around 9 o'clock. Yeah, that's a big loss, of course, to the state and to those of us who had some knowledge and friendship with him. And he was a big supporter, for instance, in, in my arena, education, mm-hmm. uh, the educational savings accounts, uh, 
was committed to liberty, I think, in a way that probably other state office holders aren't. And, you know, he just really tried and did fight the good fight um, until the end. So it's a, it's a real sad thing is passing, both, you know, on a level for his family and friends, but also, I think, for the state. Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree. And we know that Governor Brown will be appointing his replacement who will serve out the remainder of his term. So yep. um, we can... it's got to be a Republican. Oh, you know, I wasn't sure of that. Yeah, I looked it up. It does have, <laughs> yes. it does have to be a Republican. Uh-huh. Well, that's interesting to know. Although her selection of a Republican, I right. I would probably question. But nonetheless, well, that's a, that's an interesting thing. And again, that individual will serve out the remainder of his term, about a year, and then there'll be an election for that position. Right. Yeah, yeah. Julie Parrish, you know, was his campaign manager when he won, and, and she lost her House seat this last session. Um. She was the one commenting on the replacement, and she hopes it's a good replacement. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's kind of like we lose the legislature so badly. We lose the governor's race, lost Julie Parrish, and now we lose Dennis. And it's just, you know, it's uh, very deflating, I yes. think, for a lot of people in our state. Yeah. Well, let me um, just begin our conversation about the legislature by asking you sort of the broad general question. Your your thinking about what's happening in Salem this time around. I have some specific questions about things that are being considered, but your thoughts on the legislature as it's uh, underway right now? Well, it's just horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, there's several things. Um, The biggest thing, and I I don't know, I get more concerned about this than other people, I think. But as you know, probably, they just passed this rent control bill, um, which limits rent increases to 7% a year. And along with that bill is there's no way, let's say they're getting rid of no-cause termination of rentals. These are massive infringements Mm -hmm. on private property. And in the Bible, private property is a really big deal, as it is in our constitutional system. So to me, this is way radical. And even more radical was the way they did it. They ran the thing through with just the minimum amount of hearings required, would take no amendments from the Republicans, I mean, they pushed it through. Uh, it's been passed by both House and Senate in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Governor Brown will now sign it. And it is a massive restriction on private property. It's really, I think it's socialism. And I mm-hmm. think it's uh, just devastating. And consider this. So, you know, everybody says, well, my rent's high. Well, yeah, the rent's too darn high, <laughs> as the man in New York used to say. <laughs> That's obvious. <laughs> okay, so rent, supply, and demand. So what does this bill do to, for demand? Well, if people think there's going to be rent control in this state, probably more people will come to it, you know, on a a marginal basis. What does it do to supply? Well, it's going to restrict supply. Mm -hmm. I've talked to a number of landlords who are getting out of the business. They just can't make the profit. You know, they got to build and remove uh, property tax caps, and it'll have to go to the people. But whatever they do that creates new costs for homeowners is going to be reflected in that guy's ability or that woman's ability not to raise rents enough to cover the cost. So the point is, you know, uh, demand is going to get higher, supply is going to get tighter, and the end result of that is rents will go higher. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll, they'll find a way through, you know, the morass to raise rents. And there's no discussion about the urban growth boundary, which would right. allow for more um, places to build so that people could, in fact, find housing. Yeah, urban growth boundary. Uh, why don't they put a cap on permitting fees or, you know, license fees to build houses or, you know, inspection fees? Those things have skyrocketed. You probably know, but in Portland, 
if you're going to build uh, businesses, for instance, buildings in Portland, people know that this city, unlike other major cities, you got to have a whole new raft of attorneys just to work through all the city regulations on building. So Portland's a high, highly, highly regulated building environment, which increased costs. And as you say, Urban growth boundary is key to the whole thing, Yeah, supply and demand. Yeah. I want to return to something that you said a few moments ago about the biblical perspective on uh, on private property. Now, we might think, well, this is no big deal. People can afford um, housing a little more easily in the city of Portland, in the state of, of Oregon. This isn't a big deal. But it is central to a biblical worldview about the value of private property, as well as the constitutional notion of the the value of and protection of private property. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, two of the Ten Commandments are directly related to private property, stealing and not coveting your neighbor's possessions. Um, and I think that if one of the problems we have in the church, I think, is, um, and this is not going to sound good, but we're kind of all New Testament. We don't hear a lot about mm. the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, you know, land and property, all that stuff's worked out in detail, and it's a big emphasis. And so that carries over into our understanding of our Savior, for instance, using property examples. So without that root, you sort of lose the meaning. It's a little tougher to understand what's going on in the New Testament. Overall, the Bible is a property-based faith. That you know, Our existence on a piece of land with the property that we have is really important. That's one of the blessings, right? Uh, you know, your, your uh, fig tree, and, you know, your house. And, and so it's, it's a huge deal. And without property both biblically, I think, and also, as you said, in terms of the Constitution, what is liberty exactly? Liberty to do what? Mm-hmm. If you don't have liberty you know, to do what you want with your property, well, we're just out in the middle of an ocean. And, you know, no other state has done this. There's been a couple of cities here and there in different parts of the country, but they've never had this done by a, you know, by a statewide rent control, and, and they didn't want to take the time to casually work through it. Last session, they had a bill that would have allowed Portland to raise uh, or, or to in- invoke rent controls. Our Constitution currently forbids it. Um, so they have not ever studied this particular issue of universal statewide rent control laws, and yet they rushed it right through without knowing the unintended consequences. But like you, you know, my concern is about the big issues. Mm-hmm. This is about liberty. This is about property. This is about our biblical faith and our ability to exercise stewardship over what God has entrusted to us, not to other people. Yeah. And I think the core is there are implications that we may not consider uh, that are the result of these kinds of, of decisions. Right. Now, we're going to have to take a break here in just a moment. But when we come back, I want to talk to you about um, Oregon and the fact that we could become the first state with universal home visits for families oh. with babies. <laughs> Um, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like the idea of, you know, you bring your little baby home and she's wrapped up in a blanket and right behind you is a state worker who's looking over your stuff and evaluating your fitness and and all of that. But it's for your own good. So there's no reason to be alarmed. We'll get into that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show with me in studio, Dennis Turi, Executive Director of Parents Education Association. And by the way, he blogs. You can go to the website. There's great information there. In fact, there's a catalog of issues that um, they have written on that are, are still instructive uh, today. So we'll talk about that as well. Georgine Rice Show, back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
And we're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. With me in studio, Dennis Turi, Executive Director of the Parents Education Association. And we're talking about stuff here in Oregon. We'll probably broaden our conversation just a bit. But I wanted to ask you about this um, uh, proposal that Oregon become the first state with universal home visits for families of all babies. Right. Having someone either from the state or appointed by the state to follow you home and observe right. how you and the child are doing. Yeah. Um, if I could maybe quickly just one more comment about the rent control. Sure. You know, they asked Tina Kotek, uh, why 7%? And she said that they had to figure out a reasonable rate of return. Now, that to most people is just kind of, oh, okay, reasonable rate of return. But if you think about the legislature deciding a reasonable rate of return, what will they decide is the reasonable rate of return on broadcasters, for instance? I mean, they're not in a position to do that. The market should mm-hmm. do it. So it's really bad. Um, universal home visits, um, yeah, there was a hearing on that about a month ago, and there was enough pushback that they uh, – okay, so the bill as proposed is a study, just a study. Um, and it's for universal home visits. So in the way the press reported it indicated that, that would be universal. Well, so a lot of people came to the hearing concerned, and they immediately walked it back and said, well, it's not going to be universal. The parents will have to opt in. You know, it's, if parents don't want it. They don't have to have it. Um, so they pulled the bill. They have not, As of today, it's still not been updated, changed. They were going to modify the language to make sure it's Uh, optional. My concern, however, is that a couple of things. One, several Republican senators or representatives, conservatives, um, had their name on it. They were co-sponsors. And uh, and, and, and so, number one, why would they do that? If it is a problem that we'd like to solve, getting better newborn care, why is the first instinct to turn to the government Mm -hmm. as opposed to other solutions? Um, and then secondly, uh, my concern is that even though it's optional and has to be, the parent has to opt in, my question for one of the reps I was talking with was, will there be informed consent to the parent? Will the parent know that you're looking for, I think it's like 12 or 15 indicators of health in the home? Uh, will they know that they're doing a safety check? Will you mm-hmm. be aware of this? <laughs> do you know they may ask you about having a gun or whatever it is they're going to do? So is it informed consent when the parent agrees to the visit? Um, and this particular representative said he would absolutely work to keep the, get that in the legislation. So we don't know yet. It's not been – there's no new drafts or anything. Well, it's encouraging to know that they at least are listening to uh, the concerns of constituents from across the state and are reconsidering – Uh, making this uh, something at least Oregonians might be able to live with. You know, that's right. It is is actually encouraging, and people should know this. Mm -hmm. You know, what happened was a few people found out. They were concerned about it. They called people. Good uh, turnout at the hearing. The head of the Oregon Health Authority was there and testified. Now, I don't think he would have been there, (laughs) except he wanted to push back on this idea that it was going to be mandatory. And the first testimony from one of the conservative representatives is all about how, no, it's fake news to say it's mandatory. It's not going to be mandatory. So, so my point is, you know, people may think they have no ability in any direction in light of what we have in the, in the state legislature, but they do. When they push back, when they let their voices be heard, the bureaucracy pulls back, and now they're rewording it. Maybe it won't come even back at all. I don't know. But, yeah, so it is an encouraging story, actually. Yeah, we stopped it. Well, and you can make a difference, and especially I think in the legislature where you have a, you know, relative to Washington, D.C., for example, you have greater access. 
um, your voice actually has greater weight because there are fewer people who are actually raising their voices, generally speaking. And so um, exercising that capacity is perhaps even more important in right. influencing outcomes. Yeah. You know, the other really uh, upsetting bill or concerning bill is 2020. The, I'm going to call it, I think I'm going to call it cap and crony rather than cap and trade. Because you know what it does is it caps carbon emissions. You've got to pay, you know, the big utilities and companies will have to pay money to get carbon credits. And mm-hmm. so it creates this new state bureaucracy that the Energy Department will now be under here in the state under the carbon uh, administration and they'll put out, they'll then take these probably couple of billion dollars and farm it out to projects for sequestration, you know, alternative energy, et cetera. So what it is, is it's a massive siphon out of primarily private sector firms into this state organization that then will deal, will dole out money to cronies. Uh, you remember like with Obama and Solyndra, for instance, mm-hmm. same kind of thing. So it's a and, and you know the economist that is in favor of this and testified in, at the hearing said this was going to result in a radical transformation of Oregon's economy, and and I think what they mean by that is not just how energy is used, but a radical transformation again as with the rental thing, from private concerns and the free market working, to the government running more and more of everything that we have and do. So it's a huge deal. It absolutely is. But, you know, they have our best interest at heart, and they have (laughs) a long record of managing things well. PERS comes to mind. Yeah. Foster kids. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) High school graduation (laughs) rates. I I just wonder where the notion comes from that we're going to be able to manage this better for you when we have a laundry list of failures where that has not been the case, we don't, you know, there's nothing to see over here. We have a new idea that we're going to impose on you that restricts and limits your freedom and your capacity um, as Oregonians to express yourselves in the, the place you live. Yeah. Well, and you know, if you think about it, I'm not talking about the average legislator necessarily, but ultimately there's really not an incentive to fix the public schools, to fix PERS, or to fix the climate. Because if you break things, then you can keep saying, we need more of your money to fix that thing. And if you look at the educational scores, ever since the Federal Department of Education has come on, educational outcomes has gone down. Mm -hmm. But that's not used as an argument to get rid of the bureaucracy. That means we need more bureaucracy. We need more money going into the schools. So there ultimately isn't really even uh, an incentive for them to fix things. So they don't. Let's talk about the role that um, believers should play in influencing the community that we find ourselves in. Are we doing a good job of being aware of uh, the culture and the environment around us and opportunities to be salt and light from your perspective? Well, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are, um, and there certainly are groups and individuals involved. But I think overall what we have here primarily is a church problem. In the Bible, you know, it says that judgment begins at the house of God. What does that mean? Why would that be? Well, it's that way because ultimately the church is responsible for ministering to the culture. And so if the church is not doing its job correctly and holistically, then the culture is going to start swerving bad. So ultimately, I think the way the thing has to turn around is a fuller gospel, a gospel of empowerment of people in every area of their life, for work here now other than just evangelism in the mm-hmm. narrow sense of the term. And I think when we when that happens, you know, then we get involved more. Then we know 
oh, these things are important. There are biblical truths about property. There's biblical truths about stewardship. If you're not taught that stuff, you just sort of drift down the river with the rest of the culture. So I think that, as we were saying earlier with the uh, Universal Home Visit Bill, it does not take a great number of people in this state to affect change. So if Christians were to be empowered, and I think primarily by their pastors, you know this book I gave you? Mm-hmm. I thought about calling it the barking dog. <laughs> There's a verse in Isaiah that says your watchmen, your pastors are like dogs that won't bark. <laughs> right? mm. There's a danger, but he just sits there and he won't bark. So I thought we need to bark. Pastors need to bark. Um, so I think if pastors were empowering their people in terms of the application of what the scriptures really say about every area of government, for instance, and then told them about how politics works in the state. I mean, just think of just the political action tax credit. About 6% of uh, taxpaying Oregonians use the tax credit, 6%. Hmm. And there's, why wouldn't you use it? Well, most people don't use it, including Christians, because they just don't know about it. And so I think churches could do a lot to empower Christian organizations and the Christian community to get involved in electoral politics, lobbying, making a few phone calls. You know, certainly the gospel is not politics, but the gospel includes politics. Well, a great place to, to start is the Parents Education Association, a great uh, resource for information. And by the way, the book isn't The Barking Dog. It's The Bible <laughs> and Oregon Politics, Volume 1. You might want to check that out as well. Dennis Turi, it's always a delight to have you uh, in studio. I look forward to our next time. It's great seeing you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. So much. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is engineering, producing, and Clark Hilton is also engineering today's program. Well, President Trump landed on Tuesday in Vietnam for his crucial summit in North Korea with leader Kim Jong-un. The president's second meeting is part of a pretty bold push to rein in Pyongyang's nuclear ambitions. Looking forward to a very productive summit, the president tweeted on Monday before boarding Air Force One. Well, you probably um, had little knowledge of the fact that they were meeting, given that uh, all of the headlines had to do with the Cohen testimony we talked about earlier in the program. But the president landed in Hanoi hours after Kim arrived uh, by armored train. The summit uh, will take place um, later this week. Officials in Hanoi told the Associated Press that they had about 10 days to prepare, but promised airtight security for the two leaders. But the chaotic preparations included the White House press corps being shifted to a new hotel before Kim arrived. Kim subsequently toured parts of Hanoi, where locals stood behind barriers to catch a glimpse of the leader of the Hermit Kingdom. Well, the president of the United States has repeatedly hailed his meeting with Kim in Singapore last June as a success, although there were few concrete outcomes from the summit. Well, North Korea initially turned over 55 boxes of presumed remains of U.S. soldiers killed in in the Korean War, rather, as part of the agreement for the summit, although it's not yet followed through with returning additional remains. North Korea also pledged to work toward complete denuclearization, something critics say the communist regime has not adequately honored either. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo this, uh, this month said that he was hoping for a substantive step forward, but he cautioned that it may not happen, but I hope that it will. 
for good measure. President Trump has also said this is uh, going to take time. There may have to be another summit. We may not uh, get everything done this week. Again, Pompeo said, well, the secretary of state said he hoped to put the roadmap in place, but wouldn't discuss the possibility of declaring a formal end to the Korean War or pulling some American troops from South Korea and keeping with his state, uh, his stand rather against publicly discussing the issues that could arise during those negotiations. It's been told that the White House, State Department, Defense Department, Treasury Department and Energy Departments are concerned about where Special Envoy to North Korea, Stephen uh, Bengen, is uh, moving with negotiations and that he's getting too far over his skis. Well, one particular concern is that denuclearization, seen by many officials as non-negotiable, has now become a negotiating item. There is a belief among many officials that we don't want to make a deal just to make a deal and that we don't want to give away something for nothing. So we'll uh, follow what happens in this summit. The president uh, praised his special relationship with the North Korean dictator. Uh, They kicked off their second summit today by exchanging handshakes, laughs at the uh, uh, Metropole in Hanoi. They briefly spoke to reporters where the president said the biggest progress since the historic Singapore summit was the two countries' relationship. It's really a good one, the president said, rather Hopefully. It's an honor to be with Chairman Kim, the president said after exchanging handshakes. I thought the first summit was a great success, and I think this one hopefully will be equal or greater than the first. Well, the president told Kim he believes North Korea has tremendous economic potential, unbelievable, unlimited. I look forward to watching it happen and to helping it uh, helping it happen, and we will um, help it happen together. Kind of hard to follow sometimes. When asked if he would formally declare the end of the Korean War, the president simply said, we will see. Also, uh, Chairman Kim echoed the president's sentiment. Those 261 days since we met in Singapore were the days during which a lot of painstaking efforts were necessary and a lot of uh, patience was needed. As I see you here today, that gives us a hope that we will be successful this time, Kim said, according to personal translator, to which the president replied, that's nice. That's really nice. Thank you. Well, the pair met briefly before attending a social dinner where the president teased a very busy day uh, Thursday that hopefully a lot of things are going to be resolved in. I hope and I think it will lead to wonderful. um, It'll lead to really a wonderful situation long term. And our relationship is a very special relationship. Well, Trump and Kim arrived in Hanoi, as I mentioned, on Tuesday. The second summit comes amid a stalemate on denuclearization talks between the North and the U.S., President has signed some flexibility on his previous demands, or rather signaled some uh, flexibility, uh, that North Korea do denuclearize before it sees some relief from crushing U.S. and international sanctions. And again, that's a point of uh, real contention. North Korea, however, has ramped up its rhetoric in recent months and said it will never give up its nuclear weapons unless U.S. removes its nuclear threat first and lifts sanctions, crippling its economy. Sounds like a stalemate to me, but the two are having an affair, so who knows what might happen. Well, several other topics are expected to come up during the two-day summit, including bringing back the rest of the remains of U.S. soldiers killed in the Korean War. North Korea turned over 55 boxes of presumed remains uh, killed there as part of an agreement from last June in that summit. There's also growing speculation that the president may offer an announcement of peace and a formal end to the Korean War if he can convince Kim to commit to denuclearization. But there's uh, very, a lot of concern about whether or not that's the right course 
to take if, in fact, that's what the president intends to do. Meanwhile, President Trump on Monday announced that an American oil worker who was held hostage for more than a year in Yemen has been freed. It is my honor today to announce that Danny Birch, a United States citizen who has been held hostage in Yemen for 18 months, has been recovered and reunited with his wife and children, the president tweeted. You're going to be held hostage somewhere. Yemen would not be on the list of places I would prefer to be held. Trump expressed his appreciation for the support of the United Arab Emirates in securing Birch's freedom, but did not reveal other details of his recovery. Dannery's recovery reflects the best of what the United States and its partners can accomplish, the president said. We work every day to bring Americans home. We maintain constant and intensive diplomatic intelligence and law enforcement cooperation within the United States government and with our foreign partners. Birch's family told told news organizations in 2017 that the American engineer at a Yemeni oil company was abducted from his car by gunpoint in Sana'a. uh, they did it in broad daylight in front of everyone, his wife uh, told the New York Times back in 2017. Well, the president said recovering American hostages is a priority for his administration, adding we've now secured freedom for 20 American captives since my uh, election victory. He tweeted uh, as he was flying to Vietnam for a summit with the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Unrather, he will not. Uh, we will not rest as we continue our work to bring the remaining American hostages back home. And that list, uh, as long as there is a single name on it, and of course there are far more than that, is uh, certainly too long. Well, the Supreme Court will, uh, or rather, heard a case today involving the Blandenburg's Peace Cross, a forty-foot cross in the median of. A Maryland highway honoring those who died during World War One. We'll tell you about that 93 year old cross and the uh, challenge from the American Humanist Association, which filed a 2014 lawsuit against Maryland officials. We'll also uh, talk a little bit about the Ninth Circuit. They just got another Trump picked judge after the White House bypassed the consultation with uh, Democrats. Uh, And only three Democratic senators voted for the bill to protect babies born alive after abortion. We'll tell you more about that when we return as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. We'll continue in just a few moments, but do need to take a brief break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court heard a case involving the Blandenburg Peace Cross. It's a 40-foot cross in the median on a Maryland highway, and it honors those who died in World War I where the cross wasn't quite as controversial as it appears to be today. Well, the challenge to the 93-year-old structure began with the American Humanist Association when they filed a 2014 lawsuit against Maryland officials, which argued that the cross discriminates against patriotic soldiers who are not Christian. Now, both lower court decisions ruled that the cross violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. The Peace Cross was built back in 1925 as a tribute to local men who died during World War One, It was paid for by local families, businesses, and the American Legion. There were no taxpayer dollars. The Memorial Cross sits on a piece of land that's been owned since 1961 by a state commission, which pays for its maintenance and upkeep. It stands at Maryland Route 450 and U.S. Route 1 in Blandensburg, Maryland, approximately five miles from the U.S. Supreme Court. 
Well, the shape of the peace cross was selected to bear a likeness to the cross-shaped grave markers used for soldiers buried in American cemeteries overseas. Now, the plaque in the base of the cross lists the name of the 49 soldiers, and both faces of the cross have a circle with the symbol of the American Legion, the veterans organization that helped raise money to build it. Well, among the names listed are farmers from Southern Maryland, a medical school professor from Georgetown University, and a Medal of Honor recipient who was the president of the Marine Corps baseball team. The men were killed in action, mostly in France, in the final months of the war, which ended on the 11th of November, 1918. Well, lots of others were affected by the flu pandemic and died during training in the U.S. Well, Liberty Council filed an amicus brief with the high court, arguing that the memorial does not violate the First Amendment Establishment Clause. The brief also urges the court to overrule prior bad precedent known as the Lemon Test, The brief argues that the court should conclude that absent physical or financial coercion, there's no violation of the Establishment Clause. Liberty Council draws on its years of experience and the Ten Commandments cases that the Supreme Court reviewed in 2005, one of which was argued by Matt Staver. Well, the fact that the Supreme Court decided to take up the Peace Cross case provides hope that bad precedent on the Establishment Clause will finally be overruled. Now, that's a quote from Staver. He's the founder and chairman of the Liberty Council. I'm hopeful, he went on to say, the Supreme Court will jettison bad precedent that caused so much damage and confusion to the Establishment Clause. I hope the court adheres to the Constitution, abandons its silly judge-made rules, Staver went on to say. Well, we will uh, certainly follow the outcome of the case. Of course, once oral arguments are heard, it may take weeks or months before a final decision is issued by the Supreme Court. They can uphold lower court decisions. They can remand it back to the court. There are any number of options available to them. uh, But there will be some sort of a response, if not a decision, uh, to this challenge, which may help to resolve other issues that have been looming for quite some time all across the country. Well, the Senate on Tuesday confirmed the president's nominee to be judged on the liberal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in a party line vote and in an historic snub. The White House ignored the input of the judge's two Democratic home state senators in that process. With the aggressive and unprecedented move to bypass the traditional blue slip consultation process and plow ahead with the confirmation comes as the Trump administration is seeking to systematically erode left wing dominance on the key appellate court, which the president uh, has called disgraceful and politically biased. With a sprawling purview representing nine Western states, the appellate court has long been a thorn in the side of Trump and the White House. With the rulings against his travel ban policy, limits on funding to sanctuary cities, a lawsuit is currently pending before the Ninth Circuit concerning the president's emergency declaration over border security. And the president has sarcastically predicted that Democrats would purposefully file suit in the San Francisco-based appellate court to improve their odds. Well, this challenge, of course, predates the Trump administration, but it has been an ongoing challenge and a thorn in the side of conservatives who uh, look to the Ninth Circuit Court as being unfavorable in virtually every case. It is the most oft-overturned circuit court in the nation, so I don't know what uh, what you want to make of that. But uh, Miller, currently the appellate chairman of the high-powered law firm Perkins Coy, uh, will replace Judge Richard Talman, 
a Bill Clinton appointee who assumed senior status in 2018 March. Miller is the fifth former clerk to Associate Justice Clarence Thomas to be nominated by the president to a federal appellate court, including in battle D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals nominee Naomi Rao. Well, Miller represented the government before the Supreme Court when he served from 2007 to 2012 as an assistant to the Solicitor General of the United States. He was also Deputy uh, General Counsel of the Federal Communications Commission. Well, among those objecting to Miller's nomination were Washington State's two Democratic senators, Maria Cantwell and Patty Murray. Uh, Aides say uh, Miller's confirmation marks the first time the Senate has strayed from tradition and confirmed a judicial nominee over the dissent of both home state senators. This is wrong. It's a, um, a dangerous road for the Senate to go down, Murray said uh, yesterday on the Senate floor, confirming this Ninth Circuit Court nominee without the consent or true input of both home state senators and after a sham hearing would be dangerous, um, a dangerous first for the Senate. Well, Miller was uh, nominated last year, but faced opposition from Democrats in part over his views on issues of tribal sovereignty. The White House has previously signaled it will also plow ahead with the uh, other Ninth Circuit nominations rather in other states without using the blue slip consultation process. The Sacramento Bee reported last year that White House officials had been negotiating with California Senators Dianne Feinstein and Kamala Harris about Ninth Circuit appointments, but the dialogue collapsed and the White House um, proceeded to announce three nominations over their objections. Those nominees, Patrick uh, Bumate, Daniel Collins, and Kenneth Kayul Lee, all from the Golden State and reportedly all members of the Conservative Federalist Society, have yet to be confirmed. GOP critics have branded the court the nutty ninth in part because many of its rulings have been overturned by the Supreme Court. Last November, Chief Justice John Roberts openly disputed Trump's comments that the nation has Obama judges and partisan hacks on the court. The move marked a highly unusual challenge to the White House from a sitting Supreme Court justice and prompted some observers to accuse Roberts of naivete. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to uh, be to do equal uh, right to those appearing before them, Roberts said in a head-turning statement, which was more hopeful, I think, than perhaps accurate. But the president invoked the uh, Ninth Circuit, fired back immediately. Sorry, Chief Justice John Roberts, but you do indeed have Obama judges, and they have a much different point of view than the people who are charged with the safety of our country, he tweeted. It wouldn't be great if the Ninth Circuit, um, it would be great if the Ninth Circuit Court uh, was indeed an independent judiciary, but it is why uh, so many opposing um, Views on border safety, so on, cases are filed there and why uh, there's a vast number of those cases overturned. Well, the back and forth um, will continue. One appointee for the uh, Ninth Circuit, many more to go, at least according to the president's goals. Well, the Senate voted 53 to 44 in favor of legislation that would protect survivors of abortion, falling short of the necessary 60 votes to proceed as Democrats block the bill when only three of them joined Republicans. Senators Doug Jones of Alabama, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and Bob Casey Jr. of Pennsylvania were the only Democrats to vote for the bill. All other 44 Democratic senators voted against it. Republican Senators Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Tim Scott of South Carolina, and Kevin Kramer of North Dakota were not present for that vote. We're talking about the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, 
It would have mandated that babies born alive during an abortion would receive the same degree of professional skill and care to protect the newborn as would be offered by any other child born alive at the same gestational age. That's uh, Ben Sass's website's interpretation or, or quote. This bill isn't about abortion, Sass said, adding, I'm pro-life, I'm unapologetically pro-life, but this bill is not actually about anything that limits abortion. This bill doesn't have anything to do with Roe versus Wade. What this bill does is try to secure basic rights, equal rights for babies that are born and are outside the womb. Well, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer challenged Sass's legislation, saying that it was carefully crafted to target intimidate and shut down reproductive health care providers. It's sort of a creative reading of it, but Sass then called out Schumer for misrepresenting the legislation. This language is too blunt for many people in this body. Infanticide is what Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act is actually about, Sass said. Are we a country that protects babies that are alive, born outside the womb, after surviving a botched abortion? Senator Maisie Hirano, Democrat out of Hawaii, also attacked the bill. The legislation we are debating today is just the latest salvo on the far right wing assault on a women's constitutionally protected right to an abortion. So even if the child survives the effort, that child should be uh, permitted to die, uh, should be neglected until death, uh, is what she and others uh, are arguing. The legislation we are debating today is just the latest salvo, she says. Well, Sass tried in January to hold a unanimous consent vote on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act in the Senate following Andrew Cuomo um, signing of the uh, legalized abortion up to birth bill in January and Virginia trying to pass similar legislation. Senator Patty Murray objected at that time. And uh, we are continuing that slippery slope that so many poo pooed years ago. Uh, that would lead ultimately to infanticide, a disregard for the elderly and the disabled. Uh, infanticide is becoming more and is, is least being argued um, by those in positions of power all across the fruited plain. We need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. Hey, I want to remind you that Ignite is coming to the Portland area this Saturday at Greater Portland Bible Church. That's on Southwest Vermont Street here in Portland. You can come enjoy speakers, meaningful worship, prayer, dynamic uh, breakout sessions. It's going to be a great day. Uh, plus, uh, I have the opportunity to speak on the wonders of God's love and how we can extend it to others. Online registration uh, remains open. You can go to kpdq.com or use the kpdq mobile app love to see you at ignite coming up this saturday also want to remind you that tickets to gospel sing live are on sale right now that's coming up in august friday august 16th 7 o'clock p.m at riverfront park in salem an evening of great southern gospel music and celebration of over 50 years of gospel of the gospel sing here on kpdq west hampton tribute quartet the booth brothers all coming up august 16th that's a friday 7 p.m at riverfront park in salem go to kpdq.com for more information and to purchase your tickets well wisconsin governor tony evers joined a growing number of democratic governors by ordering his state's national guard troops to leave the u.s mexico border Evers issued an executive order on Monday that withdraws 112 National Guard troops from their posts along the southern border. 
The first-term Democratic governor, while blasting President Trump, claims that a national crisis exists at the border, um, argue the issue is best left to Customs and Border Patrol, who, of course, are crying out for help. There is simply not ample evidence to support the president's contention that there exists a national security crisis at our southern border, he parroted in a statement on Monday. Therefore, there is no justification for the ongoing presence of Wisconsin National Guard personnel there. I cannot support keeping our brave servicemen and women away from their families without a clear need or purpose that would actively benefit the people of Wisconsin or our nation, end quote. Well, Evers follows fellow first-term Democratic governors Gavin Newsom of California, Michelle Lujan Grisham of New New Mexico, in ordering uh, their state's National Guards off of of the U.S.-Mexico border, moves that are meant to uh, be an act of defiance against the president's immigration uh, agenda, more importantly, against the president himself. We're not interested in participating in this political theater. I think it is political theater, Newsom said back in um, uh, earlier this month when he officially announced California's withdrawal. The whole thing is ludicrous, he said. Uh, and then the other uh, Governor Grisham stated in uh, even earlier in the month from New Mexico, I reject the federal contention that there exists an overwhelming national security crisis at the southern border. New Mexico will not take part in the president's charade of border fear mongering by uh, misusing our diligent National Guard troops. End quote. Well, the withdrawals come as National Democrats are mobilizing against the president's emergency declaration for the southern border. Both chambers of Congress uh, will consider a resolution to block the president's order with such a vote surely to pass. Well, in fact, it did pass the Democratic House, while a coalition of centrist Republicans in the Senate could possibly send the resolution to the president's desk, where he, of course, has vowed to veto it. The emergency declaration has allowed the president to allocate a total of $8 billion in funds to construct a wall on the U.S. southern border, allowing him to fulfill his most touted campaign uh, pledge. So the back and forth there, again, continues back and forth as these things would have it. Well, United Methodists on Tuesday rejected an effort by more progressive members of the global church to lift the denomination's ban on same-sex marriage and LGBT uh, clergy. During the special session of the church's general conference in St. Louis, delegates voted not to substitute the more inclusive one-church plan for the conservative traditional plan, which reinforces the denomination's current prohibitions. Well, this swap failed by 75 votes, 374 to 449. Later in the day, this is on Tuesday, delegates uh, in a 438-384 vote approved the traditional plan as some opposed um, to it disputed the meeting in protest. Reverend Tom Berlin, a delegate from the Virginia Conference, spoke from the General Conference stage in support of the One Church Plan, which would have allowed same-sex marriage and LGBT clergy while adding protections for churches and pastors who do not support the marriages. So it would have allowed each individual church to reflect its own congregation's decision. What's being said in private conversations is that the traditional plan, the majority plan, is voted in today. You will be putting a virus into the American church, and it will make it very sick And it will be sick quickly, said one of the delegates. The push for substitution was delivered via a minority report. It is a general conference mechanism that supports the one church plan decided to use after the plan failed to make it out of uh, the legislative committee on Monday. Delegate Berlin said passing the traditional plan sends a hurtful message to LGBT people in the church and their allies. He said he had already heard from some people who said they would be leaving the church if the traditional plan passes. Well, meanwhile, 
um, the uh, whether you like it or not, um, the church has made the decision to stick with what the scriptures have traditionally been interpreted to say within that denomination. Nancy DiNardo, who's a delegate from the, the Western Pennsylvania Conference, spoke against the One Church Plan substitution and cites parts of Scripture as support for her reasoning. The One Church Plan does not agree with the words of our Savior and in so doing deceives young persons into believing that same-gender marriage is okay with God uh, when clearly it is not. There is danger uh, to that, not only to those being deceived, but the deceivers as well, end quote. Before the uh, top policy-making body of the denomination voted down the One Church Plan, the delegates, bishops, and others on the floor of the special session joined together in prayer. The United Methodist Church remains deeply divided over the denomination's ban on same-sex marriage and LGBT clergy. This week's big meeting in St. Louis uh, put that on full display, and the outcome threatens to split the global church of more than 12 million members. United Methodists have disagreed over their church position that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching and other LGBT uh, matters for nearly 50 years, and they continue to do so. The 864 lay and clergy delegates from around the world are voting, or rather voted, on how the church should move forward. The Legislative Committee advanced the traditional plan. It was voted on, and it succeeded. But parts of the traditional plan were ruled unconstitutional under the Church Rules Tuesday by the denomination's Judicial Council. It remains to be seen how those rulings will impact the delegates' ongoing uh, work. Christianity Today has said this about the uh, back and forth. After days of passionate debate, deliberation, and prayer, and years of tension, the United Methodist Church, or UMC, voted to maintain its traditional stance against same-sex marriage and non-celibate gay clergy, bolstered by a growing conservative contingent from Africa. The denomination's traditional plan passed with 438 votes in favor and 384 against. That's 53% to 47, very close in the final hours of the special UMC conference held this week in St. Louis to address the issue of human sexuality. The decision leaves a sizable vocal opposition, ensuring the exit of many progressive pastors and churches from the largest mainline Protestant body in America. After the final vote, protesters began chanting no and stop the harm through the rest of the session until the conference ended over an hour later. The traditional plan preserves existing positions of the church and adds further accountability measures for those who violate them by performing same-sex ceremonies or ordaining gay clergy. It was not the outcome many Americans, including the UMC bishops, had been praying for in the states. Um, A large portion of Methodists want to see the church accommodate LGBT ceremonies and clergy as other mainline denominations have in recent years. One poll through mainstream UMC reported at least two-thirds of U.S. delegates supported the more inclusive one-church plan, uh, emphasis on U.S. delegates. But the growing global presence among the 12 million member denomination held more sway. Methodists from outside the U.S. who favor more traditional uh, and theologically Uh, conservative positions on sexuality made up 41% of the general conferences, 864 delegates, a full 30% were from Africa. The session of the general conference has made it clear that there has been a dramatic shift in the center of gravity in the UMC. That is, of course, if you are looking at the United States as its head. Um, And so that decision has now been made and, um, It's anticipated that there will be a split in the United Methodist Church at some point uh, moving forward. 
uh, again, uh, leadership in Africa and some of the nations outside of the United States holding the um, members uh, to the theologically, historically theological positions of the church uh, from this point uh, back. So we'll continue to follow that story as it develops. We're going to take a quick break. When we uh, come back, we'll talk a little bit about an emotional support animal that mauled a five-year-old girl at a Portland airport. It's um, it's disturbing that increasingly we're seeing, um, in quotes, emotional support animals being allowed in places. Uh, first of all, they're not emotional support animals in the strictest sense. They're animals that make their owners feel better, but they're not prepared for, trained for the kinds of situations that they're being put into This five-year-old girl was mauled at the Portland airport. A lawsuit is currently pending. We'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, I want to give you a heads up that a Christian education for your child, your grandchild, your niece, your nephew, a kid you care about, might just be a little more possible than you imagine. KPDQ listeners can save up to 40% on Christian school tuition. Schools like North Clackamas Christian School, Columbia Christian Schools, Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School, Western Christian, and many more. Now, to find out more and to get your discount, visit listenersavings.com. That's listenersavings.com. It is that time of year to begin thinking about how you can uh, send a child for a Christian education at up to 40% discount. So check that out. Well, the mother of a five-year-old girl mauled in the face by a pit bull at Portland International Airport has filed a $1.1 million lawsuit against the Port of Portland for allegedly letting a dangerous emotional support animal, again in quotes, into the airport without a carrier. Well, the lawsuit lists two other defendants, the dog's owner, Michelle Brannon, and Alaska Airlines. The suit claims Brannon should have known that her dog had vicious propensities. The suit says the airline is at fault for allegedly allowing Brannon to bring a dangerous dog into the gate waiting area where the attack happened when the dog wasn't a trained service animal and wasn't properly confined. Now, that just sounds like an incident waiting to happen. Well, Myrna Gonzalez is suing on behalf of her daughter, Gabrielle, who's five years old at the time of the attack uh, and has since turned seven. So that gives you some indication of the timeline. According to their Portland attorney, Gabriella and her family were waiting at gate C7 to board a flight to Texas for the Christmas holiday. The girl's mother and older sister went to get coffee nearby as Gabrielle and her 13-year-old brother waited at the gate. Well, with Brandon's consent, Gabrielle began petting the dog. Stavely said it... Um, then bit her, punctured her eyelid, severed her tear duct, lacerating her face, tearing her lip. Stavely said the girl underwent surgery and has visible scars today. I don't know if you remember, but uh, our our former program director, her, his son had a very similar incident in which he was a, actually a model and a dog, I think it was a pit bull in that case as well, um, attacked him in his face and he was scarred and while the kids, you know, still really handsome. It uh, it ended his career because there there was scarring as a consequence. Well, Gabrielle Gonzalez suffered a, a severed tear duct, a lacerated lip and other injuries during the attack, uh, according to her family's lawyer. Well, Brandon uh, couldn't be reached for comment, but Air, uh, Alaska Airlines declined to comment. 
Uh, spokesperson for the Port of Portland declined comment on the specifics of the case, but explained the port's policy allowing animals. She said port officials can ask someone traveling with a dog if the dog is a trained service animal. If the traveler says yes, officials can ask what service the dog provides. The traveler needs only answer those questions, and we're required to accept the answers. Again, an incident waiting to happen. Uh, she added that officials don't ask for documentation of the animal's training. Well, Simon said the port distinguishes between trained service animals and emotional support animals, requiring that the latter be put in carriers while passing through the airport. If the animal is too large for a carrier, the animal must be on a leash within three feet of the owner. The port officials apparently thought Brandon's dog could have fit into some sort of carrier because the port uh, police cited her for failing to crate the dog. Well, Stavely said he doesn't know if officials at the airport questioned Brandon about her dog before she got to the gate or what Brandon might have said when asked if her dog was a trained service animal or an emotional support animal. Stavely said Brandon was carrying what looked like a form letter from her therapist saying the animal was an emotional support animal. It didn't say what kind of animal. It was just a generic animal. So who knows what it referred to, if not this uh, this dog. Well, Brandon, who lived in Portland at the time, was also... Uh, was allowed to catch a later flight without her dog. According to Alaska Airlines policy on its website, trained service animals as well as emotional support animals fly free of charge. We welcome trained service animals and emotional support animals, the website said. The airline doesn't require that. I mean, when you're talking about a cramped fuselage, which these planes essentially all are these days, I can't even imagine having a support animal in that space as well. But anyway, the airline doesn't require that the emotional service animal travel in a carrier. Rather, the website states that a leash is also acceptable, at least to them. The suit seeks $100,000 for past and future medical costs, including the cost of surgery, and $1 million for the girl's pain and suffering. The girl and her family live in Pasco, Washington, uh, and were traveling through Portland at Christmas time to see family. Well, as you know, snow fell overnight in the Portland area and the Willamette Valley, closing schools, creating icy conditions for morning for the morning commute. Well, this morning's scenario could repeat itself overnight into tomorrow morning. Temperatures will be near freezing overnight and a brief snowstorm could hit Portland uh, around 7 a.m. this morning. Now, the snow has ceased falling here uh, where we are, but it snowed pretty heavily and it was quite lovely through much of the afternoon. Well, the snow on Wednesday will turn to rain or rain-snow mix by the afternoon with a high temperature of about 39 degrees. While the dusting to um, up to an inch fell in the southern parts of Portland, Clark County had less snow. Portland, Beaverton, Tiger, Tualatin, Oregon City, Salem, Kaiser, many more school districts closed for the day. Uh, today, thousands of Pacific Power customers and uh, spotlights are, um, I should say, were without power in the southeast a part of Portland, north of Stark, toward I-84. Thursday will be uh, the last chance for snow this week, we're being told. So if you like seeing it fall, you might see some tonight or in the morning. Snow fell in the Portland area earlier this week with accumulations ranging from a trace to a couple of inches, shutting down a stretch of northwest Germantown Road and causing several rollovers and crashes. In Junction City, some school principals had a lot of fun with the snow day announcements, creating videos that included a spot-on parody of the sounds of silence and uh, short reimaginings of Piano Man and Another One Bites the Dust. Kids had fun getting that announcement as well as having the day. 
As I mentioned, thousands of uh, Portland residents were without power in the Montevilla neighborhood here in Portland. Businesses there were unable to open on time. Residents were without heat as they waited for the power to come back on. Power went out shortly after 4 a.m. this morning when a Pacific Power transformer blew. At one point, some 4,500 customers were without power. Crews uh, slowly but surely um, restored power to parts of the area. It wasn't until just about 3 o'clock this afternoon that they completed that uh, that task. Pacific Power is still investigating the cause of the outage. It was likely weather-related, but there you have it. So that's what we can expect weather-wise in the next couple of um, couple of days. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with David Ayers. He is the author of Christian Marriage. Okay, no, he's not the author of Christian Marriage. He's the author of a book titled Christian Marriage, a comprehensive introduction. So if you want to know what does it mean, I mean, we know what marriage is, but what is it, a Christian marriage? What does that mean? What distinguishes a regular secular marriage from a Christian marriage? What are the requirements? What are the expectations? We're going to talk about this primer, if you will, written by David Ayers, author of uh, Christian Marriage, the book, A Comprehensive Introduction. So I hope you'll join us for that tomorrow. I want to thank James Blend for engineering a portion of and uh, producing all of today's program and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program as well. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day and I hope you'll join us tomorrow as we talk with David Ayers, author of the book Christian Marriage, A Comprehensive Introduction. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.